0: praise God for each of you who are here this morning under the sound of my voice and under the sovereign hand of of our Lord. If this is your first time visiting with us, we are so glad that you are here. If you are uh, a believer, we pray that this sermon will encourage you and enrich you uh, to grow in your faith uh, in your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you're not, our prayer is is that the, the word that will be preached today, that it will be planted in your heart, and that you will see Jesus as your true and greatest treasure. If you would, uh, bow with me for a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for this opportunity uh, just to hear your word. And I pray, Father God, that we would not take that lightly, uh, but that we would understand what's happening even at this moment, for every single person in this room. As your word is proclaimed, Father God, either we will submit to it and love your son, or either we will not. And therefore, Father God, not enjoy life with you as we should. Father, I pray that you would allow me to proclaim your son and proclaim him crucified and resurrected. I pray, Father God, that you would allow this message to be a warning to some and a word of encouragement to others. But I pray, Lord, in all, that it would be sound for your namesake. I pray for your people, that this word would help them to mature and grow in you. That you, Father God, would lead us from milk to meat in order that we would be the people, that we would be the people, Father God, to take the gospel to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. Lord, let this be devotional, instructional, but let it be passionate, Father, because you are a passionate God, and the awesome, magnificent, wonderful name of Jesus Christ we proclaim. Amen. Amen. You know, the Bible is God's revelation about himself, given through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to mankind. And the Bible, uh, God once proclaimed to his servant Moses as he passed by him, he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin. This is what God proclaimed about himself. But yet in the scriptures, the Lord reveals himself as a a gracious God who supplies and offers salvation to to people who don't deserve it. But the scripture reveals that he is also a God who can be turned off and who can choose to, to not reveal himself to some. There is a disastrous sin that can lead one to be eternally separated from God. There is a sin that grieves the Holy Spirit and that grieves our God so bad that he refuses to forgive it. This is a sin that is known as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Some call it the unpardonable sin, the eternal sin. And today we want to to look at it by turning our attention to Mark chapter 3, verse 22 through 30. Now, this unforgivable sin, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it it frightens many believers and non-believers. Some believers in here have found themselves thinking back to a day when maybe they were a teenager or maybe you weren't a Christian and you remember a day where you were just furious and out of ignorance. You curse God or maybe said something bad about the Holy Spirit. And you're wondering if, if you have exiled yourself from the presence of God. And if one day you'll stand before God and you'll be thinking as you stand before God that you're about to spend eternity with him, but he'll say, nope. Remember that one day? And there's others in here who don't have a relationship with God and you are at war against God in your heart. And you're thinking to yourself, I know that I've cursed God. I know that I've committed blasphemy. Well, today we are going to look at whether or not you did and whether or not you should be afraid. We're going to look at how one commits this grievous sin, and we're also going to look at how this text calls us to respond to this sin and to Jesus' words here. Mark chapter 3, verse 22 through 30. Out of reverence of God's word, I'm going to ask you to stand. When you get there, say, got it. And everybody should say, got it, amen. Mark chapter 3, verse 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. An unclean spirit. You may be seated. Praise God for his word. Today we'll be looking at what a gracious God refuses to forgive. What a gracious God refuses to forgive. So we have been traveling through the book of Mark on and off. We took a a slight pause as we dealt with our theme uh, for this year. And we'll be returning back to the theme and also uh, dealing with Mark throughout this year. But as we look at this text, we, we really do uh, want to see exactly what, what the Lord is saying in order that some in here may be comfort comforted and others in here may be warned. We see here in verse 22 that the Bible reads, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. So we see that there are some scribes. Scribes were, uh, so to speak, the religious elite. Uh, They were responsible for the law of God. They often copied the law of God. They were like lawyers and they uh, knew it well. They taught as well at times in, in synagogues and they were the religious leaders. So we see that these scribes, they are coming down from Jerusalem. An interesting phrase here because actually they would have been traveling north. Why does it say that they're coming down from Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem is is a high place, a high point. And no matter where you were going, no matter which direction you were coming down from Jerusalem uh, or going to from Jerusalem, you were coming down. So it says that these scribes were coming down to Jerusalem. And why were they coming down to Jerusalem? They were coming down to see Jesus. Jesus was turning uh, Galilee, the Palestine area, he was turning it upside down. The Bible teaches that he was in the synagogues and he was teaching as one who had authority. He was teaching as if he was the very author of life, which he is. It also teaches that he was casting out demons. He was uh, exor- uh, doing exorcism. It teaches that he was doing all kind of miraculous things. And these scribes were coming to see Jesus. Now, this was not, this particular group of scribes, this was not their first time seeing Jesus. In Mark's gospel account, we see that Mark really starts his ministry with with Jesus, his northern Galilee ministry. So we see Jesus in Capernaum. But according to the other gospels, the synoptic gospels, we know that Jesus went to Jerusalem. And he spent some time in Jerusalem. And while he was in Jerusalem, he cleaned out the temple because people were worshiping in vain and not representing uh, God in the way that they should. But while he was in Jerusalem, he also did many miracles. So these scribes are coming to see Jesus, a Jesus that they would have saw already do miracles. They would have saw him heal people. They would have heard him teach They would have seen him carry himself like no one had ever carried himself before. He was a a faultless and a, a blameless man. When they looked at him, they would have been looking at the very presence of God, the very person of God. But yet they continue to intentionally harden their hearts. They intentionally hardened their hearts. They, they, they intentionally said, this is not one who we should follow. Why? Because they wanted to protect their own kingdom. They wanted to protect their own interest. They were the religious leaders. They, they loved their law. They loved being celebrated by the people. They loved seeming important. So when they heard the very words of God, the very life of God, they hardened their hearts and they chose not to love God. And of course, we know that there's a satanic presence behind it. Satan also, the Bible says, that it's blinding those who are in the world. And we also know God was choosing to not allow them to come to see his son. So we see them denying Jesus. We see them harden their hearts towards God. And it's, it's one thing to deny him, it's another thing to insult him. Throughout the Synoptic Gospels, we see that they, and, and even in this passage a few verses before, people were starting to say that Jesus was crazy, local, out of his mind. Even his own uh, family said he, he's, he's lost it. But see, saying that Jesus is crazy, it does not explain his miracles, The scribes and the Pharisees was at a place where people weren't listening to them say that this Jesus of Nazareth is crazy. Because it came to a point to say, well, how do you explain the fact that he is healing blind people? So now they had to come up with another way to attack him. Another way to get to him. And what do they revert to? They revert to just straight up insulting him. Let's look at the text. So they came and they said, he is possessed by Belzebub And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Now let's, let's see, this, this word Beelzebub here, it is derived from the word Belzebub with a B. So we see there's an L at the end of this name. Beelzebub was a god that the uh, Akronites, those who lived in Akron, Uh, Akron was a city of Philistine. This was their God. This was a a foreign God that we see in the Old Testament, in the beginning of 2 Kings. Well, to the Jews, uh, Beelzebub had come to mean the name of Satan. Beelzebub, with a B at the end of it, literally means the Lord of the high place or the Lord of the high temple. Well, you take the B and you change it to an L, at least in English, it completely changes the meaning of the word. By changing one letter, it changes it from the Lord of the high place to the Lord of dung or manure, the Lord of filthy things. Some of call it the Lord of the flies. So they're saying, in essence, that he is cast, he is possessed by Satan, He is possessed by this filthy, slithering serpent or snake. And by the prince of demons, or by Satan, he is casting out demons. They're saying the way in which Jesus is performing these miracles is because he is satanic. And listen to how Jesus responds in verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables. So he begins to speak to them. Parables are small stories or phrases that carry big truths. So he gathers them together. He knows they're, they're hating. He knows they're jealous. And listen to how he, he does it. He does it by presenting logic to them. He's, he's going to show them that this, 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 this uh, uh, cadding that they're doing, it is, is logically absurd. And not only is it logically absurd, it's theologically unsound. So listen to what he says. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So we know this. He, he says, wait a minute, you're saying that I am satanic and I'm driving out devils. What sense does that make? And he says, if, if, if a kingdom is divided, if there's divisions all within a kingdom, what's going to happen? That kingdom is going to fall, right? It's, going, it's, it's not going to be strong. We see that and we're experiencing that here in America. America. So he, he, he begins to tear down their logic. Then he goes on and says, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand, right? If a husband and a wife is completely divided and if the kids are divided against the parents and, and there's no unity, what's going to happen? It's going to fall. And then he says, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So Jesus is logically saying this makes no sense, You saying that I am demonic and I am satanic, it actually, it makes no sense. Listen to what you're saying. But then he says a a peculiar thing here in the next verse. Something that's really important for us to understand exactly what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. So let's just think about this logically, what the the text is saying. He's saying that no one can enter a a man's house. I'm talking about a man's man. No one can enter a man's house. Right, fellas? Nobody can spoil our goods. No one can can take uh, our, our electronics and our kitchen table and, you know, and our family. No one can harm our family without first getting through us. Well, listen to what Jesus is saying. He says, the same thing applies for Satan's kingdom. Jesus is saying, no one can come to this earth and cause the type of havoc that I'm causing. (laughs) No one can stand like Mark chapter one shows. No one can stand in a synagogue and just begin to preach the word and have a demonic man begin to yell. No one can go to Peter's mother's house and just touch her and watch a headache leave. He says, no one can do what I'm doing unless, I, unless they first bind the strong man. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is pointing back to Genesis chapter 3.15, back to that promise that God made in the middle of a garden when Adam and Eve sinned against God and chose to rebel against them and to live life on their own merit and their own standards. Jesus is saying, as God promised that one day from the seed of a woman, there will come one who will bruise the head of the serpent. Jesus is saying, I am that man. I am the one who has come to crush Satan's kingdom and you are now witnessing that. I'm not satanic. I'm not bound by Satan. I'm the true strong man that's able to come in a house and clean it up. I'm the true strong man who is able to establish a kingdom that will not be shaken. It's interesting. That even in his analogy, as we just think through it, what we learn is that Satan's kingdom is not divided. Isn't that interesting? That demons are working together? These dirty, lying, filthy demons are working together to cause havoc in this earth. I think this is a call for us as Christians. (laughs) Maybe we can learn something and declare war on his kingdom and not against each other. So let's look at what he says here. Verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. The children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. What a gracious God. What a gracious God. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So as we have looked at this contextually, briefly, the question then is, what is Jesus saying? Verse 34, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus is, is, is making a direct statement to him. He's saying, you are looking at this wrong. I am not Satan, but rather, I, I am the one who has come to to divide his kingdom, to defeat his kingdom. And then he says to them, uh, and then he, the, the, uh, Mark makes the, the statement, and he goes and says, for they were saying he has an unclean sti- uh, spirit. So we know that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit has to do with uh, with someone calling Jesus unclean. We could take that from the text, but, but I want to think about this contextually and give us a definition of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a definition that that I have come up with. And in your bulletins, you'll see that uh, if you open them up, that there's a place where you can follow along with the sermon and you can actually fill in a blank so that when you go home, you can meditate on this definition. If someone ever comes to you running saying, I'm afraid that I've committed the unpardonable sin, you can say, okay, well, this is a good working definition uh, of what that is. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit occurs when a person who has experienced the very power of God, not out of ignorance, but they intentionally and flagrantly reject and insults the Holy Spirit by attributing the Spirit's work to Satan, though knowing it is the work of God. We're going to chew on that for a second. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit occurs when a person who has experienced the very power of God. So I'm arguing that these scribes, they have been enlightened. They have seen God do things like never before. They at least know that a prophet is among them. They at least know, and even their theology will show and teach them that this is God. But rather than acknowledging the very power of God, rather than saying this is God, they chose, not out of ignorance, but they chose to reject God. And why did they choose to reject God? Because they want to be kings of their own kingdom. And they want to protect their own interests at the end of the day. So they intentionally, and they flagrantly reject and insult the Holy Spirit by attributing the Spirit's work to Satan, to Beelzebub, though knowing, though knowing it is the work of God. So let's look a, a, a little more into this um, as we know that these Pharisees, they have experienced the teaching, healings, miracles of the person of Christ. And, and let's think about what this looks like today. Is it possible to blaspheme the Holy Spirit today? Jesus is not walking the earth, so and he's not doing all these miracles. So is it possible? Is, is blasphemy the Holy Spirit when we look at a TV evangelist who is selling uh, handkerchiefs and dirty water saying it'll make us clean? and we say, oh, that's in no way, God, is that blaspheming the Holy Spirit? And I would argue that it is not. (laughs) Uh, But but there is a way that we can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Uh, People today can blaspheme the Holy Spirit if they are intentionally and flagrantly denying the very power of God. Maybe a person experienced the healing of God. Maybe God miraculously healed them. And, and, And maybe uh, they, and, and they know in their hearts, God has convicted them and shown them that it was me who, who has done this. And maybe they experience life with the people of God and they have been in the church even after that healing, but they choose, even though knowing Jesus and even though having a clear presentation of the gospel and hearing the gospel preached, they choose to rebel against God, not only rebel against God, but to insult God to insult the Holy Spirit, to flagrantly and intentionally say things against the Holy Spirit once they have been enlightened. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Hearing the gospel, accepting it, believing it, knowing it as true, walking with God, experiencing life with God for a while, possibly, and I'll I'll show that in scriptures uh, in a few minutes, and, and then just cursing God and trying to turn people away from God. Maybe because God didn't give them what they wanted. But they have declared war on God. They have declared war on God. So why the Holy Spirit? Why is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit wrong? Why is it not blasphemy against God, the Father? As Christians, we serve a triune God, which means that we believe that there is one God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, each equally, Uh, important, each sharing the same nature and essence. So God the Father is equally God the Son. God the Son uh, is is, is equally God. I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit is equally God as well. So why not, why is it okay for someone to blaspheme maybe against Jesus by not saying he has an unclean spirit and against God the Father but not the Holy Spirit? Now, and I want to say that I believe it's, it's two reasons. Number one, It's a result of the Holy Spirit's role in Jesus' ministry. The Holy Spirit's role in Jesus' ministry. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is 100% God. While he was walking the earth, he was 100% God. And it also teaches us that he was 100% divine, 100% man. But the Bible teaches that Jesus in order to complete the mission that God the Father sent him, that he willfully limited parts of his divinity at times in order to follow the will of God and the direction of the Holy Spirit. So he did not cease to be divine, but he willfully limited parts of his divinity at times in order to tap into and experience man, uh, being, being man. So we see in the scriptures a time where uh, the disciples and, and those around him ask a question, when is the Son of Man returning? When is the last days? When is this all going to be to an end? And Jesus says, no one knows that but the Father. Now we know that Jesus is all-knowing. But what he did at that time is he chose to not tap into his divinity in order to fulfill his purpose on earth. Amen? But the reason why, Uh, So we we read this, the Holy Spirit's role in Jesus' ministry. So that's why when we read Isaiah 61, verse 1, Jesus says, for the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me, Isaiah says, of Jesus, to to preach the good news. And we read in Mark chapter 1 that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that the Holy Spirit, while Jesus is being baptized, that the Holy Spirit, it descends from heaven. It comes from heaven, and it, 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 it falls upon him. So in order that Jesus, while he is walking this earth, in order that he can follow God the Father's lead as well as the Holy Spirit's lead. And we know that right after that, the Spirit led him to the wilderness. So he is just like us. He is depending on God. That's why we see him praying, getting away in the wilderness and praying, because he is really depending on God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is showing us how to live as Christians. He is showing us that life, as a Christian, is a life that is depending upon God, that is constantly in tune with God. Even though Jesus is, is 100% God, he is in tune with the Father. He is getting up early in the morning and praying to God the Father because he needs to know his will. So I, I believe that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a, a grave sin because it, it insults the spirit that led Jesus to purchase our, our salvation and empower Jesus. The second thing is the spirit's role in salvation. The spirit's role in salvation. Now, this is going to be a generalization, and and I'm going to really simplify what I'm saying here, but I want you to understand that, that as we look at the scripture, we do see each person in the Godhead or in this trinity, we do see that they have specific roles. We see God the Father is the planner of salvation. He has planned a way to redeem mankind, to redeem this world, to, to bring and restore his kingdom. We'll see right away in Genesis chapter 3, he has a plan. He has a purpose. But in the scriptures, we see that God the Son, or Jesus, is his primary role is to purchase our salvation. So God the Father plans it. Jesus comes and he provides it. By purchasing our salvation on Calvary's cross, he took our sins, he bore our sins on the cross so that those who look to him in faith, that they may have forgiveness of sins. But the role of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit is to pursue those who God has ordained to be saved and to possess them, to overtake them. The Holy Spirit's job is to to soften the heart of those who God has called to be saved and who is not saved and to regenerate it. So by saying that Jesus or that the spirit by which Jesus is, is working and, and moving, by, by saying that it is Satan, by intentionally uh, uh, denying the manifestations of God as God has been uh, showing himself to this person, By by flagrantly rejecting the Holy Spirit, they are grieving the Holy Spirit to the point that the Holy Spirit gives them over to their sin and says, I will not allow you to experience this great salvation, which we know ultimately goes back to God's forming from the very beginning. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable because one denies the very power by which they will be saved. Now, I want to say that I believe that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a very rare sin. Uh, I think that it's a very rare sin, in a sense, that, of the way that we see it laying out in this text. You know, most people, even non-believers, if you don't believe in Jesus— Most people are not at the point where they will call Jesus Satan. They're not. They may say he's not God, he's a prophet, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. But very few people will stand up and say he's Satan and mean it. And very few people have the chance to experience God enlightening them in such a way and saying, I know this is God and then turning their backs from him and cursing him in this way. So it's a rare sin. So what do we do with this text? What do we do with this text? Well, one, I want to encourage you, if you have been haunted by the sin of blasphemy, maybe, as I said before, you said something against uh, God or Jesus when you were younger, and that haunts you and you uh, have been bearing fruit of repentance and love the Lord, uh, and you did it out of ignorance, I want to call you to, to relax and be comforted. But I think that this text ultimately does two things. Number one, it's a call for unbelievers to follow Jesus immediately. To follow Jesus immediately. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, this text is calling you to follow him immediately. And I'm not using the word accept him. Oh, accept Jesus. Jesus doesn't need our acceptance. I'm calling you to follow him. I'm using the words that he used in Mark chapter 1. Follow me. You need me. I don't need you. This text calls you to follow him immediately. What do you mean? These scribes, they didn't just get here overnight. This just wasn't one morning they woke up and, they're, and then the next second they're just cursing Jesus and meaning it. Even though they see his very power. This was probably a slow process of them denying every single miracle that they saw as they were following him around Jerusalem. This was a process of them hardening their hearts over time. And there is someone in here today who have, you have heard the good news. You have heard Jesus. You, have, you, you know that he is calling you to follow him. And you know that your life is broken and it's a mess, but you are choosing to love your life and to live your life on your terms rather than on his, I want to warn you that your heart, God, can very well remove his spirit from you, and your heart can be callous or hard. You probably can tell this without me saying it, but I don't lift weights. Wow, you're shocked, right? I'm not a weightlifter. okay? I used to be. Uh, when I was in high school, I lifted weights, and the beginning of my college life, I, I, I lifted weights, and... You know, I, I did okay with it, but I, I haven't lifted a weight. It's probably been about seven years, brother Dent. Monday, I'm going to go. I'm just going to lift a weight, all right? But listen, I still have callous skin on my hand. My skin is hardened right here from me not lifting ten, seven years ago. From from when I lifted seven to ten years ago. That skin just got hard as it just rubbed up against those those barbells. It's got tough. It's hard. It, it, it's not like this part that's soft. That happened over time as me lifting, trying to get my body ready for amber. Yeah. My wife. happened over time. Preparing for my wife, it just happened. Well, the same thing is for those who continue to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has come to save you, and you continue to harden your heart. God can very well not give you that opportunity. You can walk out of here today and die, and you will spend eternity separated from God. Let me tell you this good news. The Bible teaches... That man is broken. And the reason man is broken is because man sinned against God in the very beginning. God gave man an opportunity to to experience life with him under his rule. But man chose to, to try to find life apart from God. And finding life, finding pleasure apart from God and God's design is sin. It is disrespectful for God. God is the greatest being. And to say, and he is our creator, and to say, I don't want you to be Lord of my life. I don't want you to be king of my life, even though you created me, even though you know what's best for me. I'm going to turn and I'm going to trust in my own self and think that I can save myself. It grieves God. And God, a holy and perfect God, a God who is amazing, then refuses Refuses to walk with a person who is living that way. And he declares that he will kill that person, that that person will die apart from him if they do not turn back and trust from him. Because a holy God, a perfect God, must be a just God. He cannot allow rebellion and sin and wrongdoing to not be punished, At least, Him Himself be seen as unjust, just like a just judge cannot knowingly have the power to, to can know that someone has committed a heinous crime and have the power to do something about it, but who refuses to do something about it. We would say that that judge is unjust, but the Bible teaches that God was not okay with leaving man in that state of separation, but that this God made a decision even before he created man to pursue mankind. He made a decision to restore his kingdom and give us a chance at life with him. That's what the Bible is. It's a story about how God is pursuing mankind and how he is pursuing you. And the ultimate climax shows up in his son Jesus. Jesus came fully God and yet fully man and he walked this earth in order to be a pleasing life and a pleasing sacrifice to God. He did for you what you could never do for yourself. He was perfectly obedient to every single part of the law. And he died a death that you deserve. All of God's wrath, that wrath that he has towards our disobedience, our knowing us, our sinning against him, knowing that we're sinning against him. God chose to allow his wrath to be poured out on his son in order that you would not have to experience that, in order that you would have life with him. Every sin, lying, bitterness, jealousy, hatred, murder, adultery, God made a way for you to be forgiven through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus took the punishment that you deserved. He went to hell on Calvary's cross in order that you would not have to. And he calls you to turn from a life committed to living for yourself. To turn to a life committed to knowing Jesus and living for him. To repent. Today you are hearing this message, and if you are hardening your heart, I want to warn you, don't. You will end up possibly just like these Pharisees, storing up wrath in your heart. And if you don't curse God while you're here on this earth and say that he's Satan, you one day will stand before his throne when he reveals himself, and in your heart you'll be cursing him because you know that you will not spend eternity with him. And God is trying to save you from that. You know, someone in here today, you, maybe you're saying, listen, you don't understand, Pastor Jamal. You don't understand all that I've done. You don't understand, you don't understand the weightiness of, of the things that I've done. There's no salvation for me. Pastor Jamal, I've ripped people off. I've sold cocaine. Pastor Jamal, I've prostituted myself. I've betrayed people who loved me and who did no good. Pastor Jamal, just last night I was, I was in a bed with a woman or a man that I had no business being in bed with. And I'm here to tell you that there is forgiveness for you. Amen. Isaiah 51, 59 and 1 tells us that God's hands are, are not too short, that he cannot save you. And he is not deaf so that he cannot hear you. Or blind so that he cannot see you. He sees you. And even in the midst of your filth, in the midst of your hardening of your heart, he says, life with me is better. Turn from a life committed to yourself and trust in me. And I know you feel like you don't deserve it. I'm glad you feel that way because you don't deserve it. No one deserves this salvation. No one deserves to have their sins forgiven by an eternally and infinite holy God. No one deserves to experience life with God and God's grace. No one deserves to experience the family of God. No one. But that is what salvation is all about. It's about how this gracious God, in spite of ourselves, saves us. And out of him saving us, even though we know we don't deserve it. That is what motivates us to live for him. Number two, the second thing this text shows us is this, and we're done. This is a call for unbelievers to follow Jesus immediately, but this is a call for Christians to fight sin immediately. To fight sin immediately. Go to Hebrews chapter 6 really quickly. Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 4. You know, we can read this and we can say, "Ooh, I haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit, whew, I'm glad I'm in Jesus, but this is a warning. Now, Hebrews chapter 6 is a very difficult passage. So I'm going to go through it quickly, but hopefully I'm going to go through it rather clearly because I think that the same thing is is happening here that Jesus is bringing up in Mark chapter 3. I believe that. and holding him up in contempt. Okay, so in verse 4 we see says, so, so we see that the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jews not many, many years after the death of Jesus, and he's writing to, to warn these Hebrews, and what he's warning them is he's warning them against falling away. He's warning them against not taking their relationship with God serious. Now, I want you to understand that we cannot, a person who has truly been saved by God— who has truly been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who has truly been captured by God, cannot lose their salvation. It's impossible. John chapter 10. Once a person is truly saved, they are saved. But while we are saved, the Bible also teaches that we are being saved. Okay? Salvation ultimately will be fully experienced as we persevere to the end. So this language that the author is using here, he is warning people who have been enlightened. Now, he doesn't use the words regenerated or who have been born again, but he intentionally uses the word enlightened. That means they have experienced the power of God in some way. Like I said, maybe it's through a miracle, maybe it's through uh, liking the gospel, and they liked it, and they really enjoyed it, but they have been enlightened. They have experienced life with God amongst God's people. Maybe they have not been saved. He doesn't know, so he's using the word enlightened. But listen to what he says. He says, for it is impossible. What is it impossible to do? Verse 6, to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible to restore a person again to repentance who has tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, who has experienced the goodness of God and who has fallen away. In other words, who has said in their heart, who has contempt towards God and towards Jesus. He said it is impossible to restore them again to faith. So what is happening here, I believe what's happening here is is that the author is really picking up on what Jesus is teaching. He's trying to warn Christians to not take their sin lightly. He's trying to warn them and warn us to run from sin. Because sin, it grabs us and it keeps us longer than we want to stay. And if we're not careful, our hearts can be hardened towards the message that we have received. And we can find ourselves back in the world or in the world where we probably were before with a hard heart towards God in contempt with God, flagrantly rejecting and insulting God. I know a person like that who was someone I looked up to, who was a minister of the gospel, and apparently he fell into adultery. And the brothers tried to come alongside him and get him out of this adulterous relationship and try to love him. And he kept saying, I'm coming back, I'm coming back. This brother to this day has never come back, and he is against God. Went to his Facebook page, he is against God. What happened? This this one person who was enlightened before, who appeared to know God, who probably really did not know God, he hardened his heart, he allowed sin to stay too long, and that sin got comfortable to him, and now he is not in God. And God very well may not bring him back. He may have grieved the Holy Spirit to the point that God is choosing not to touch him. Theologians call this an apostate, a person whose heart has become so hardened that they cannot be forgiven of their sin. And why can't they be forgiven of their sin? Because God refuses to pursue them, and he has given them over. Now, this is the thing. The Bible doesn't give us a timeline and teach us how long it takes for this to happen. We are standing literally on God's grace. Now, we shouldn't as Christians be living in guilt and condemnation and fear when we sin, but we should take heed of Paul's words to the church at Philippi, which says, live before the Lord with fear and trembling. There's someone who is a believer in here or who confesses to be a believer who is caught up in adultery, and I'm talking to you today. You are hiding, and maybe, maybe it's not with a physical woman. Maybe it's with a pick scale. Maybe it's with a computer screen, but God is calling you out today, and he is warning you. He's saying, do not, as Hebrews chapter 2 says, how can we escape such a great salvation? Do not spurn the blood of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, do not take lightly the blood of Jesus. He died for you. He, he took God's wrath in order that you would not have to, in order that you would experience true life, life more abundantly. Do not take it lightly by throwing it away. And maybe you're not adulterous. Maybe you're a liar. Maybe you're, you are just okay with lying your way out of any situation and you think it's okay you call it a white lie well a white lie can lead you to a dark hell Revelation chapter 21 verse 8 God is calling you today to repent as a believer to repent and to put off lying and to put on the truth every single one of them maybe it's pride Maybe it's pride. Maybe you just walk into pride. You can't receive anything from anyone from the Bible because you're a know-it-all. I'm calling you today to repent from it, to admit that God is the only one who is all-knowing. The Bible says, as Deacon Potter said on Wednesday, the Bible teaches us that, that God knows what you're going to say before you say it. And for you to think that you know everything and what everybody else is going to say is a sin, come back. Do not take sin lightly. It can lead you somewhere. Every time we sin and we ignore God and we habitually walk in sin, our hearts are just getting harder and harder and harder. That's why the Bible tells us to confess our sins one to another. That's why I meet with brothers and I tell them, listen, I am doing a horrible job in this area. I am sinning. And I got some brothers who will look me straight in the face and they will blast me for that sin. But then they will teach me, they will give me God's grace and say, it's okay, God forgives you. Walk in peace with God. confessing my sin to someone else, I don't, I'm I'm going to be fighting that sin because I don't want to have to look at them next week and lie to them. And maybe that's what some of us, maybe that's what we need. But I'm calling you today to look to this gracious God. Let's finish up by looking at this last verse in Mark. Mark chapter 3. Look at how great God is. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. The children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, Whatever. You know, it's easy for us to leave here and just focus on what God won't forgive and to focus on what he refuses to forgive and to forget what he will forgive. God is gracious, just like he declared to Moses the Lord is slow to anger. He is gracious. He is loving. God will forgive you if you will turn and repent. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. Isaiah 43 and 25. Listen to what he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Wow. I forgive you for your sin for my sake, he says, not for your sake. I forgive you for my sins. And if you come to me and turn to me, it's for my sake. Because if you truly, truly are, are, are grievous over your sins, you, and you understand that this loving and gracious and this holy God has forgiven you of your sins, you will live for his name and for his renown. He said, and that's for my sake. And I will not remember your sins. Some of you all, someone right here now is bitter. You are holding on to something that someone else has done to you. And you will not forgive them. Some of you are holding on to stuff that someone else has done to you or someone else, even in this church, and that person has no idea about it. You're mad because somebody else is mad at somebody else we so silly? I praise God that he's gracious and he's not like us. That's silly. But God said, I'll forgive you. And let me show you how great I am. Not only will I forgive you, but I won't remember your sins. We're closing at this. Now, of course, we know that this is an anthropomorphic term. This is giving God human-like qualities. God cannot forget something. He remembers everything, for he's all-knowing. But what God is saying here, as he said in other places of scripture, I will throw your...